right? And uh, we started, we, we've been at it a long time. We started to think we're something. We start to think that maybe God got the, uh, a good deal when he got us, right? But at the end of the day, we're just sinners saved by grace. And we're just one beggar trying to tell other beggars where to find bread, right? Doesn't make us any better than anybody else. It just means that we're saved and on our way to heaven. And that's something that we ought to be thankful for and uh, something that we ought to never let get old to us. Well, this morning, this morning I want to talk to you about discipleship. Um, you know, we're, we're, Riley and Emma are getting baptized after the, after the service here or as we finish up the service. And, um, you know, they've been saved. They know they're saved. And, of course, you know, baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It's just a public profession of our faith. It's not washing your sins away or any of those kind of things. It's just telling everybody else, hey, I'm saved and I know it. Once you get saved and once you get baptized, your job is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And a disciple defined by Webster is a learner, a scholar, one who receives or professes to receive instruction from another, a follower, an adherent to the doctrines of another. Hence, the constant attendance of Christ were called his disciples, and hence, all Christians are called his disciples as they profess to learn and receive his doctrines and precepts. It's amazing, by the way. That's Webster's 1828 dictionary, how far we've come from, from our Christian heritage, right? Uh, the fact that most, if you go back and look in that dictionary, most of the examples that he gives as, as far as to how the words are being used is in a, in a Christian context. But that's exactly, I mean, what else is a disciple? It's a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why the, the 12 disciples were called disciples. They were followers of Jesus Christ. They, they sat at his feet. They listened to his teaching. They adhered to his doctrines, right? That's what a disciple is. Within that definition is the key to what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. There's no greater example of how we ought to live than to follow in the, in the steps of Jesus Christ, right? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21 that, uh, says that we should follow his steps. That's what a disciple does. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is, is a great example, obviously. Let me give you a word about Jesus Christ as our example. There are many people who believe in Jesus Christ and who want to be followers of Jesus who are not. And in their current condition, they never can be disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come to this earth to show us how to be a good person. He didn't come to this earth to, to, to be an example or to teach us good things. He didn't, he didn't come as a prophet. He didn't come to, to be a teacher. He was, not, uh, he, he was not a philosopher. Jesus Christ could probably be considered all of those things, but that's not why Jesus came. The Bible says in Luke chapter 19, in verse number 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ came to be your Savior and mine. That's why Jesus Christ came. Sadly, there's a whole lot of people who believe that Jesus lived. They believe that he died on the cross. They believe that, that he rose again, and they believe that he was a great teacher and all of those things that, that will never step foot in heaven. And that's because though Jesus Christ is all of those things, he never became their Savior. Jesus Christ wants to be your Savior. To, to get to heaven, Jesus Christ must be your Savior. And that only happens when you realize that you're a sinner. So you realize that that sin is what is causing us to, to, to spend an eternity in hell. Realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for those sins, accept his death on the cross as that payment, and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's just a dying man shouting out, I need somebody to help me. I need somebody to rescue me. That's what somebody who is drowning in a boat is do, or drowning in the water when a boat comes along, right? Help! Somebody help me! And they throw down the life, the, 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 uh, the life preserver, and, and uh, the, the guy starts to come up with all kinds of excuses why he can't grab it, right? 
Well, certainly, uh, let me pay you $5 for throwing that life, that, that life preserver down. Or, or let, me, uh, let me prove that I'm a good swimmer, and then I'll grab onto that life preserver. Or any number of other things. It would be foolish for somebody that, that, that saw the life preserver right there, and all you have to do is reach out and grab it and get pulled into the boat. And that's exactly what salvation is from Jesus Christ. He has thrown us that life preserver. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he's just waiting for us to accept that gift of his death on the cross to pay for our sins. Ask him, and he will. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Having said all that, there's no greater example of how we should live our lives as Christians than to follow the one who we were named after, Jesus Christ, right? Christians means little Christ. That, was, that name was a derogatory term on the early Christians. They were, it was, oh, a bunch of little Christs running around. But honestly, there's not much better that you could say about somebody than they're a little Christ. We are Christians. We are disciples. We should be disciples of Jesus Christ. After we're saved, our main ambition should be to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a learner of Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ, one who receives instructions from Christ. You see, a, a world at its worst needs a church at its best. And the only way that that is going to happen is if we become true disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What disciples do. If we're to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want to look at the example of Jesus Christ here in Luke chapter 14 and, and see just what we should be doing to be his disciples. Let's pray, and then we'll look at a couple of these things here this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for an opportunity to be here. Thank you for an opportunity that we have to learn from your word. I pray that you'd help us all to have hearts that are open to whatever it is that you have for us from this passage and from your word this morning. And God, I pray that where changes are necessary, I pray that we'd have the courage and the boldness to make those changes. And God, that we'd ask for your help this morning. We ask for your power on the message. And God, we don't want to be here if, if you're not in this place. And so I pray that you would just uh, meet with us this morning and that we would uh, gain some things from your word. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Back there in Luke chapter 14, we see in verse number one, it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go and answered them saying, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him again to these things. Number one, I'll say this. Disciples care about people. Disciples care about people. Here, of course, one of the reasons Jesus came was to fulfill the law. We see that all the way throughout the New Testament. But the Pharisees had such strict laws on the Sabbath day that, that they had a certain number of steps that they were allowed to take. They had all kinds of restrictions. They basically were not allowed to do anything except worship in the temple on the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus saw this man that had dropsy. Now, that, it was an unnatural collection of water in some part of the body, basically just an, an unnatural swelling, a watery swelling over the whole body. It was a very distressing disease, and often, especially in that day, incurable. And so, I, I don't know, how, you know, this man comes to Jesus, no idea how. Uh, Jesus is just in this house, and this man is there. I think the Pharisees were trying to set Jesus up just to see what he was going to do. It says there in verse number one that he was in the house of one of the chief Pharisees. The end of that verse says, and they watched him. I think they brought this man just to see what Jesus would do on the Sabbath day. And he was, he was probably at this house, whether he was invited or not is, is not given to us in this passage, but the Pharisees were basically setting a trap for Jesus. 
Could Jesus heal this man? And if so, would he do it on the Sabbath? Well, they didn't answer. Jesus said, is it okay to, to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And they didn't answer. I think they, they, didn't, they didn't know what the answer was. But then Jesus kind of goes on the offensive. He knew that they would save their possession if it fell into a pit. And so though Jesus knew that it was going to draw the criticism of the Pharisees and others, Jesus healed this man, and he sent him on his way. He cared about this man. Here was a man who was probably in a lot of pain with no hope. Oh, that we would care about those around us. There are so many that are hurting. There are so many that are looking for the answers looking for, for a way out of their situation. We have the truth of the word of God. We have the gospel. Now, that's, that, the gospel is not going to heal somebody's pain or something like that, but the, 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 uh, the emotional pain that people deal with and the, and the torment that they deal with not knowing uh, what's going to happen in eternity and, and, the, and the guilt and the pressure of having that burden of sin on their backs, we can give them that hope. And yet so often we just go about our business and we just go about our day and, and whether we would say it with our mouth or not, and most of the times we never would, we don't care. Can you not see when you go down to the mall? Can you not see as you're driving down the street the hordes of people that just have that emptiness in their eyes because they're, they're missing out on the hope that's in Jesus Christ? Do you care enough about people to show them what they really need? They need Jesus. But so often we're worried about saving face to our friends or our coworkers or we're afraid of the criticism that we're going to, that we would take if we take a bold stand for Jesus Christ. The criticism that would come on us if we try to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we look down on those who we deem are a little bit lower than our status, whatever that happens to be. Jesus cared about people and as disciples of his, so should we. Number two, we see that the disciples humbled disciples humble themselves and serve. Verse number 7 of Luke 14, and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden. When he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and, and him come, to, come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, disciples humble themselves and serve. At any gathering, there were, there were, uh, there were tables that were grouped in seats of three called a triclinium. And the host would take the lowest place, and then the guest of honor would sit in the middle of those three seats, and the, the special guest of honor would take the middle table in that middle seat. And the Lord had seen these, 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 these guests pushing and shoving and trying to take those seats of honor, and Jesus had to say, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. No, you're not, you're not supposed to look for the place of honor. Look for the lowest place. Hey, it's a lot better to, to look for the lowest place and be brought higher than to be in a high place and be brought low, Right? And that's exactly what he's saying there in verse 11. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I can't tell you how many examples of people that you could look at that have done exactly that. They, they started having a little bit, a little bit of success, even, even spiritually, even, even within Christianity. And they start you know, getting lifted up a little bit, and the next thing you know, it goes to their head, and they can't handle it, and God has to abase them. 
Boy, it'd be a whole lot better to abase ourselves and let God exalt us than to have it be the other way around. But that's what disciples do. These Jewish doctors of the law were notorious for their pride. And Jesus gave his conclusion. In the silence, he said, Whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and whosoever he that humbles himself shall be exalted. What a good lesson for us. Our goal shouldn't be to sit down and say, How can I be served today? What can God do for me? What can the church do for me? We should stand up and say, What can I do to serve? Jesus was a prime example of humility. He washed his disciples' feet. That was a job that was given to the servants. And that's, that's made all the, the, the more disgusting when you think about the fact that all the roads were just dusty, dirt roads, and that they wore sandals everywhere they went. Right? They didn't, they didn't have nice shoes to cover it all up. They didn't have nice sidewalks that they walked on. Uh, you know, maybe our feet stink a little bit, but they're certainly not dirty and nasty. And, you know, just imagine all the, all the grit and the grime and all of that stuff. And yet Jesus sat down and washed his disciples' feet. What an example of humility. This is not just a great teacher. This is not just a philosopher. This is not just a, a good example. This is the God of heaven who came down, who had angels bowing at his feet and singing, holy, 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 around the throne, humbling himself and washing the feet of somebody that he created. It's, a, it's, it's almost... It's, it's almost incomprehensible to us, but you know, you imagine as a, as a kid when you maybe, maybe played with your uh, Play-Doh or something like that, and you created this, this man out of Play-Doh, and the next thing you know, you're down there seriously washing the feet of that little figure that you made. I mean, you'd think how foolish that would be. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you wash the feet of some Play-Doh figure? But to God, compared to God, that's, that's who we are. We're nothing but dust, we're nothing but dirt, we're nothing but sinners in the eyes of God. And yet he was willing to humble himself and to wash the disciples' feet. He laid down his life for us. What more of an example do we need? John F. Kennedy said, he said it like this in relation to our country, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And I think we can apply that in, in some ways to the spiritual aspect of it in relation to, to our church and to our service for God. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church and for Jesus Christ, right? That's, we should be willing to serve in whatever way God asks us to serve. It may not always be the job that everybody sees. It may not be the job that's the most glamorous, but service and humility. That's what disciples do. Number three, disciples live to minister. We see this in verse number 12 in Luke chapter 14. Then said he also to him that bade him, well, thou makest a dinner or a supper. Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just." See, Jesus had just exposed their arrogance and their pride, and while he has them in this place of silence, he starts to expose now their selfishness. He said, a lot of you guys, the only reason you're inviting the people that you do is because you want to be invited back to their place. You invite your rich friends. You invite all those with prestige because you think that they're going to return that honor back to you. But what I'm telling you is, look at the poor. Look at the halt. Look at the blind. Look at the maimed. Those are the ones that you should be going to. They can't do anything for you. They can't give anything back to you, but that's what disciples do. Disciples live to minister. Jesus said we're blessed when we do things for those and minister to those who cannot do anything for us in return. Well, that's, what, that's the job of the church. 
right? Our job is not to, to go out and try to reach all the, the, the rich doctors and lawyers and all of that stuff. Of course we want to bring them to Jesus Christ. But if, that, if that's our goal so that we can build big buildings and have plenty of money and all of those kind of things, we've entirely missed the point of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There are people, people all over in this community that don't have a lot, that need somebody that cares about them, that'll help them get off the streets, that'll help them get off drugs, that'll help them uh, to find what they're looking for in Jesus Christ. They can't give us anything back, but that's what disciples do. They live to minister. There are quite a few definitions of a minister and what it means to minister. A minister is a chief servant. It's an agent appointed to transact or manage business under the authority of another. To minister is to attend and serve, to perform service in any office, sacred or secular. What a convicting word. Are you living to minister? Are you living to serve? So many only help those that they can feel that they feel that they can get something from in return. Well, I'll be kind to that person because there's a possibility I can get a little bit of whatever it is that they have. Well, I'll befriend that person because there's a possibility that that'll advance my career or that'll, that'll help me get along a little bit farther or that'll give me some better connections or whatever it is that our motivations are behind the things that we do sometimes. Our motivation ought not to be for those things. We ought not to say, I can't deal with those poor people. They can't do anything for me. So many people are willing to be bought by the highest bidder. Boy, you see that in politics all the time, but you also see that happen in churches so often. Hey, this guy, now he can bring some money into this church. This guy, he's got that talent or that ability. We need to court him. We need to work on trying to get that guy in. Oh, what a, what a tremendous asset he would be. Hey, everybody has potential in Jesus Christ. Boy, I've seen some people that have come off the street that have done some amazing things for God. My wife and I were just talking. We, um, we go up to uh, uh, Pennsylvania in June, and we have a, a family conference. And um, this, this past time that we were there, actually the last two times, there was a lady there, uh, drug addict, um, had, had, had been addicted to drugs and, and uh, all kinds of other things, just life spiraling completely out of control. And you know, believe it or not, I never would have known, but this lady showed up and she's a pastor's wife. She had hit rock bottom. She, had, she, had, she was addicted to drugs. She went through drug rehab. She was, she was on everything that you could think of. And God changed her life. And now she and her husband are working in a church. He's the pastor. She's a pastor's wife up in Maine. It's amazing what God can do. Somebody else looking at that person would say, ah, that's gutter material. There's nothing. God can never use that person. Let's go to the doctors. Let's go to the people who have money. Let's go to the people who can do something for me. But that's not what true disciples do. True disciples live to minister. So, so popular and effective was, was G. Campbell Morgan's ministry that he was given all kinds of offers from, from many different places and, and many different people. Maybe you'll recognize the name of John Wanamaker. He offered that if G. Campbell Morgan would come and be the pastor of their church, he would build him a million-dollar auditorium. And back then, in those days, late 1800s, early 1900s, a million-dollar auditorium was a massive, massive thing. And G. Campbell Morgan turned John Wanamaker down. That was something that Wanamaker, being as wealthy as he was, wasn't accustomed to. And so he said, why would you turn down an offer like this? Why would you turn something down that, that's so, uh, so prestigious a position and so, uh, so wonderful a proposition? And G. Campbell Morgan said, I'm God's man. If I did that, I would become John Wanamaker's man. And 
disciples live to minister. Number four, we see this. Look at verse number 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. First said unto him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, and the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it's done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. My disciples. See, disciples invite others to the master. The invited guests here symbolize the Jews that, that God had so often uh, made so many advances in so many ways over so many centuries to try to draw them to himself. And they came up with excuse after excuse after excuse. They were given many opportunities to come to the Savior. Jesus described what so many people do today when they're invited to Jesus Christ without religion, without works, without any pretense. They, they start to make excuses, right? The, this, the first man was too big to come. He had bought property and he had to go see it. He, he considered himself too big to come to this supper, and he excused himself. The second man was too busy. Who, who buys oxen that you're going to use as a livelihood without looking at them first? But this man found that as an excuse. And honestly, one, one excuse is as good as another. You can have a great reason for not coming. You can have a great reason for not uh, you know, doing all these different things. The third man was too blissful. He had married a wife. He couldn't come. But how many of those are used as excuses to keep people from coming to Jesus? I'm too important. I can't come to Christ. I got, you know, I got, I got too many people that would think bad of me or, or think evil of me or, or think I'm weird if I come to Jesus Christ. Not to mention the fact that there's probably a hundred other people that this man knows that are all thinking the exact same thing. They're going to think I'm weird if I come to Christ. They're going to think something's wrong with me if I profess my faith in Christ. And they're all thinking the same thing. I'm too busy to think about coming to Jesus Christ. When things slow down, I'll take some time to study it out and, and then I'll come to Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, you don't know if you're given another minute. I have family ties that keep me where I am. I can't come to Jesus Christ as my Savior. You know, I've, I've been a Mormon my whole life, or I've been Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic or whatever. I've been that my whole life. I can't come to Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that we must love him more than we love any of those relationships. He said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brethren and his sisters and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. What an amazing thing. Jesus is not telling us to hate our families. He's saying that our love for him in comparison ought to look like hate. Looks like we hate our fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and everybody else and even our own lives in comparison with the love that we have for him. A true disciple of Jesus Christ will invite them anyway. There are those that are out there that are truly searching for the truth. And I don't know where they are. I don't know who they are. But God does. And he's designated you to be the one to tell them. Can you imagine standing before God someday and having God point out 
all the different people, as they stand at the great, great white throne judgment, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And he says, oh, by the way, that was one that I had for you to tell. Oh, by the way, there's another one. That was one that I had for you to tell. You were too busy. You were too prideful. You had too much going on. You were too focused on work, too focused on whatever else. Oh, there's another one. That was one that I had for you to tell. Can you imagine what it's going to be like on that day? When we have to watch those that God gave us an opportunity to share the message of the gospel with, and we didn't. And now, they're condemned to spend an eternity in hell. True disciples invite others to Jesus Christ. See, if we decided to lump everyone together and say, nobody wants it anymore, they all got excuses, nobody wants to come to church, nobody wants to get saved, then we're going to miss those who really want to know the truth. And by the way, I've said this many times before, it's not about inviting them to church. It's great. If you invite somebody to church, they're going to, they're going to hear the gospel. They're going to have an opportunity to be saved. But our, 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 our commission is not to invite people to church. Our, our commission is to invite people to Christ. And if you, shame on you, honestly, if you invite somebody to church and they have not heard the message of the gospel before they got there. It's not the job of the church to win them to Christ. It's your job to win them to Christ. It's your job to tell them about Jesus. And we, look, we can't win them all. And there's, there's some that plant, some that water. God gives the increase. It may be that you told this person how to be saved five times and they came to church, they heard it differently and they got saved. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen that way. But our job and our responsibility is not to just invite somebody to church. It's to invite them to know Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. That's our responsibility. Every one of us has that responsibility. And you're going to come across people that nobody else who's a Christian will probably ever be able to meet. You're going to know people that God gives you influence over where you have the opportunity to share the message of the gospel with them that I'll never have. You have neighbors that I'll never live next to that you can share the gospel with. You have coworkers that I'll never work with that you have an opportunity to share the gospel with. You have family members that I'll never be related to that you have an opportunity to share the gospel message with. Are you going to do it? Because that's what true disciples of Jesus Christ do. Look at verse number 27. We'll see number five. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Disciples bear their cross. Remember that by this time, Jesus had not died on the cross yet. The cross was not the symbol to them that it is to us today. Jesus Christ had talked about his death, but they didn't know what carrying your cross meant. It certainly had not become the symbol that it is today. The words must have struck a pretty dissonant chord with the crowd that was there that day. See, a, a cross, a cross was the very symbol of Roman oppression, Roman cruelty. That was the way that they killed their most hardened criminals. That was the way they tortured the ones that they were trying to make the biggest example out of. And now Jesus is saying, whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Imagine what they must have thought when they heard that. It was gallows. It was an unbelievable instrument of shame and suffering. That's what cross meant to them. It still means that to us today, but it's got a completely different meaning when you know that Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay for our sins. Nothing about the cross was glamorous. It was a symbol of the curse. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, and also in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, the exact same words. 
Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. They would have heard that from Deuteronomy. It was repeated again in Galatians. There was nothing glamorous about a cross. And when Jesus tells them, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, that meant, hey, this is a, a rough life ahead for you if you're willing to bear that cross. Even the disciples in Matthew 16 reacted against the message, the mention of the cross. But a true disciple will take up his cross and follow Jesus Christ. All the reproach, all the afflictions, all the persecution or whatever, even if it's death itself, we may be called to, 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 to bear in bearing our cross. But unless we're willing to cheerfully and patiently take up our cross to follow Jesus Christ, you cannot claim the, the title of disciple of Jesus Christ. We're so used to ease. We're so used to luxury. That's what we live in. So few are actually willing to take up a cross and follow Christ. Well, there's a lot of people who are willing to say they will, but very few who will actually do it. But that's what a true disciple of Jesus Christ does. Let me share this with you quickly. Number six. Verse number 28, for which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else... While the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Disciples count the cost and serve anyway. Disciples count the cost and serve anyway. Jesus was warning them that he didn't want them to respond to his call impulsively. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is costly. It's serious business. It calls for serious thought. It calls for deliberate thought. Sit down and say, man, if I become a disciple of Jesus Christ, a true disciple of Jesus Christ, this is what it's going to cost me. But you know what? I'm willing to pay that cost. I want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Mission fields of the world can tell stories of would-be missionaries who, once all the glitz and the glamour and the deputation and the praise and all of this stuff is worn off, Stark realities become evident. They packed up and they went home. There are a lot of people who have become a Christian here in America who once they realized that being a real Christian and a real disciple of Jesus Christ decided that they would rather have the world than Jesus Christ. And they turned their back on being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The true disciple of Christ realizes that it may cost him something to follow Christ, but he said to do it anyway. And the last one then is this. Is, as kind of a conclusion here, we see in verse number 34, salt is good, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Because at the end of the day, to wrap all of that stuff up, disciples are there to truly preserve Christianity. Do you know that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction? If we don't pass this on to the next generation, there is no Christianity. There is no Christian. There is no disciples. If we don't pass it on, if we don't preserve what we have, we're losing it. We're losing Christianity in this country. 
It used to be that everywhere you turn, there was evidences of Christianity. Now we're trying to do everything we can to erase it. It's going away. Salt is to add flavor. It's to keep things from getting rotten and corrupted. Salt that's lost that savor is good for nothing. Not even the manure heap, like the Bible says here. It's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill. We're to be salt of Christianity. Turn over to one last verse in Matthew chapter 5. See, if we don't live as Christians, then we're good for nothing. Why did God leave us here on this earth after we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior? I'll tell you why. It's because he's got a job for us to do. He's got people that he wants us to win. And he wants us to be his disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 13 says this. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost, lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. See, God desires for Christians to preserve all that's good and all that's right and all that's holy, to preserve all the things that the Bible commands us to do. But if we don't live as Christians, then what good are we on this earth? Why claim the name of Jesus Christ if you're not going to be a Christian? Why pretend to be a disciple if you're not going to be a truly, a truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ? If we've lost what we're designed to do, then what good are we for Christ? It's like a, a, a bicycle with no wheels, like an airplane with no wings. What's the point of it? It's not serving its purpose if it can't do what it was designed to do. And as Christians, we're designed and, and, and commissioned by God to preserve what's good and right and holy. And if we're not doing that, then what's the point of even being alive on this earth as a Christian? Disciples of Jesus Christ live as Jesus Christ lived, and that means they're going to live according to the word of God. If you're saved, then you have a big responsibility in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The great violinist Niccolo Paganini willed his magnificent violin to the city of Geneva, gave it to him, and said that they could keep it on display in the museum as long as it was never played again. So they accepted that violin. The wood of that instrument, while it's used and handled, only wears a little bit. But when that wood sits there unused, it does exactly what that violin does, turned into dust. It's, it, not only would they never play it, they could never play it again. Because that wood just sat there. And it's de it was designed to be used. Designed, that, that the wood that that violin was made out of was designed to be played upon. And when it stopped being played upon, it got to the point where it couldn't be played upon anymore. See, a Christian's unwillingness to serve may very soon destroy his capacity for usefulness. The same is true of a Christian who is not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, there was a pastor and his wife. Uh, I, I don't know him personally, but he's he's friend, close friends of several of my friends. And I've never met him, but he lives down in North Carolina. And I, I, I'm assuming he's about the same age uh, as me. He's, he and his wife just celebrated their 16th anniversary on uh, August the 14th. They went, I saw some pictures that they had posted on Facebook of, of spending some time in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and, you know, doing some things together. And they got some videos 
and all this other stuff. And right after they got back, he started feeling sick. And so they took him over to the emergency room, and doctors couldn't find out anything that was wrong with him. And so they were going to send him off for a neurological exam. And uh, he just, like, the next day started vomiting and uh, basically losing his balance and falling over and everything else. So they knew it was something neurological. They were trying to get him to a hospital. And they did. They got him to the hospital and were trying to get him down to Duke University for some specialized tests and everything else. But the doctors could not find anything wrong. And so they, they've just been putting it off and not saving a bed for him there at Duke and everything else. And so, um, you know, and his, and, and his wife has been putting updates on his status and how he's doing and all of that other stuff. And um, sp- speaks around at a lot of different places. He's a piano tuner. He's, you know, great in music and everything else. And... Um, just in, uh, in, in the last few days, his wife, um, got on and did a video. I don't know what God's doing. We can't figure it out. We, we don't know what's going on, but we know that God's in control. Don't know why God's not allowing him to go to Duke and, and save a bed and all these other things, different stuff that's going on. And it turns out that Saturday morning, he took a bad turn and had no idea why or what was causing it or anything else. And by Saturday afternoon, he was gone. Pastor, two weeks ago, enjoying a good vacation with his wife, three young kids, 16th, 16th anniversary, gone. And I say that to say this, you don't know when your time is going to be up. You don't know if you've got another moment to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But beyond that, you don't know if you're going to get another opportunity to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Judging by everything that I saw about about this pastor, I think there's probably a lot of things that he's going to be rejoicing in heaven over that he did for Jesus Christ. But there's going to be a lot of us that are going to have to hang our head in shame and say, I thought I had more time. I thought I could enjoy these things and then be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Disciples are disciples because they follow now. If you're not following Christ, if you're not living for Christ, then you cannot call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ because a disciple is a follower of him. And disciples care about people. Disciples humble themselves and serve. Disciples live to minister. They invite others to Christ. They bear their cross. They count the cross and they serve anyway. You know what happens when all of that's done? They preserve Christianity because they did what God called them to do, and that's just to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you living as a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Don't wait. If you have things that you need to get right with God, get them right with God. If you have things that you need to change so that you can get busy serving, do it. Change them so you can serve. What an opportunity we have. Boy, I want to be part of the preservation process. I don't want to be part of that salt that's lost its savor. It's good for nothing. Are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for an opportunity that we have to share this message this morning. 
There's a lot of people in our church who are willing to serve, and I'm thankful for that. But maybe not serving in the capacity that they can. Maybe not serving at all. Maybe not following at all. Maybe not willing to give up a few of the things that they think they just cannot give up in order to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. God, give us the strength. Give us the boldness to truly be disciples of Jesus Christ. Where decisions need to be made, God, I pray that you would help us to make them this morning. We thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Piano's going to play, and we're going to have an opportunity for you to come down here. And if God's spoken to your heart about something, to make a decision. I don't know what you need to change. God does. You do, more than likely. But do it. Don't you want to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? There's a lot of fakers out there. A lot of people posing as Christians. A lot of people posing as disciples. Very few who actually are. Won't you make a decision this morning to do what God needs you to do so that you can be useful in his service? I hope you will. As the piano plays, the invitation is open. You can come.